heard a lot about this uh, show, the ex-candidates. This has been a pretty thorough interview. These institutions which we've been told to respect and trust are actually completely untrustworthy. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. So you can pay my electricity bill, you think, that was spared. We're teaching them about what it means to be a pansexual instead of teaching them how to do your taxes. It's no for me. I say no to the boys. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex-Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, joined by Adam Zara. How are you going tonight, Adam? I'm pretty good, Stephen, mate. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. And on tonight's episode, we have Dr. Gary Johns. Now, Dr. Gary Johns was a formal, former Labor member of the uh, Federal Parliament from 1987 to 1996. He was also a member of the Paul Keating Government Ministry. Uh, he's a senior. He was a senior fellow of the Institute of Public Affairs from 1997 to 2006. Also, the president of the Benelong Society, and is also a current committee member of Recognize a Better, Recognize a Better Way, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, in the interview. And he has written widely on Aboriginal affairs, including uh, some books uh, which include Aboriginal self determination and his most current book, Burden of Culture. How are you tonight, Gary? Yeah, well, indeed. Thanks, Stephen and Adam. Look forward to our discussion. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm looking uh, forward to it as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something on the tip of everyone's tongue at the moment. This whole voice referendum. Now, you've been involved in writing a lot about Aboriginal issues uh, all the way back to when you left Parliament. What got you into this area? What got you so interested in Aboriginal affairs? Well, uh, it was one of those singular events. Um, it was called Coronation Hill. It was in 1990, uh, a moment when the Greens, I think, used Aboriginal people to try to close down a new mining venture or renewed mining venture in Coronation Hill at Kakadu. And it came to Labor to decide it. Uh, the caucus was very much in favour of allowing the mining to go ahead, but uh, Bob Hawke, under advice from Richo, who said we need the second preferences of Greens to win the next election, that's what turned the vote, um, and we, we stopped the mining, we designated uh, Coronation Hill or Kakadu as a national park. So that, that was the device we used to stop the mining. And I just I saw uh, close up, if you like, the manipulation that the Greens uh, had done to Aboriginal people, how they were used. And really from that moment on, uh, I... I took a greater interest in Aboriginal affairs, so it's been, you know, 30-something years. It just seems very similar to, you know, when a parent weaponises the child against a partner in family court, you know, like just using it as a, using the Aboriginal people as a weapon to try and get a point across and it doesn't really benefit anyone. And did, did that choice of um, making um, Kakadu a national park and stopping that mine did it benefit the Aboriginal people at all? No, I doubt it. And uh, it, it continues, that behaviour continues to this day, if you like. It's the ignorance of East Coast middle-class people about the actual living conditions of Aboriginal people. 
and of course the cost of in, of environmental uh, winds that uh, continues to severely constrain the growth of Australian uh, the Australian economy. It, it really is a battle out there. And I'm not in anyone's camp, you know, mining companies, whatever. I, 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 I'm not attached to any industry. It just seems to me that this thing has got way out of hand. Uh, Aboriginal people won equality in 1967 and made it real in the 70s and 80s. And now that sort of second, third generation Aboriginal leader who all speak English and all gone to university have turned against us. They have turned equality against us they're now obsessed with being uh more worthy than the rest of us and that's what the voice is is actually saying so you've uh, you've recently written this book burden of culture now i, I think the title kind of gives a, a little bit of an idea of what the, what you're trying to say there but what are your main arguments in the book that you're you're trying to get across to people well the guts of it is that about 80% of Aboriginal people are doing about as well as other Australians. Now, that'll come as a shock to many because whenever we raise the issue of you know, poor Aboriginal people, the gap, everyone thinks that all Aboriginal people are in trouble. They're not. 80% are doing okay or about as well as other Australians from rich to poor. So the dominant theme in Aboriginal affairs for 50 years, has been the slow and steady integration of Aboriginal people into the wider society. But there are 20% who have been left out. So the book is saying why are they left out? Well, for two reasons. One is uh, that we lock them out of the economy during the whole land rights question. So we've locked them on to uh, collective title, which is very difficult to actually you know, make money from. And then the other thing is we've said to them, well, you can stay there and be an Aborigine. That's what's killing them because their own culture is not well suited to life in a modern urban society. So I work through those propositions in, in some length. Um, but, but things that were, well, if not appropriate, things that worked for them as a hunter-gatherer society, uh, things like payback, belief in sorcery, uh, and intense intra-family obligations do not work now. It's holding people back. It's, it's stopping people from escaping their circumstances, and, and that's what's killing the last 20%, and, and it's a burden, so I call it the burden of culture. Um, just with the point that you made on, um, you know, bridging the gap, and to me it just seems like it was not surprising to me that you said that 80% have basically integrated into modern society and 80% of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people are doing well, or well, as well as can be like everyone else. And that's a fair comparison. So you've got an average fellow like me, like I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm just an average tradie living in Campbelltown. I go to work every day and I make the best money I can make, okay, and therefore supply to my best ability, food and clothing and whatever, and education to my children. Now, if an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander did the same job as me, I would expect that they would have the same opportunity as me. I mean, you know, like if they made, if we were 
say I had an Aboriginal twin or an, an, identi- an identi- identical counterpart who's had the same morals and values like I did, family, house, um, home, um, then they should basically have the same ability to make the money and have choose their choices in their life. They should be able to have a couple of cars, have food on the table, the kids in school and everything be okay. But my, my big thing was is that, and this whole thing about the pay gap, even between men and women and between white people and Aboriginal people, is that you're comparing people who live in a city to people who live right out, out, out back, in the outback. Now, you obviously can't, it's chalk and cheese, you can't compare the two lives because that um, an Aboriginal family living in Whoop Whoop with a white family who chooses to live in Whoop Whoop have the same ability to make money from the land, whatever the land has, and things like that. There's no real gap between those people. You're comparing chalk and cheese to try and close a gap that really doesn't exist. Am I am I right in believing that kind of thing? Well, the elements of that that are true. I guess I'd sum it up by saying being Aboriginal is not enough. So, okay, you're of Aboriginal descent. That's terrific, and it's none of my business. It's not a matter of public policy. The only question for public policy is: Can you survive? Do you pay your taxes? Uh, have you gone to school long enough to get a job? That's all that matters. Uh, but it seems to me in this sort of era of identity politics, we place enormous weight on the fact that you are something. You know, all those little public servants who write down the bottom of their letter, their, their signature blocks, we acknowledge Aboriginal culture. They have no idea what it is. It never gets explained. It is part of the problem. But it's also acknowledging that their culture is somehow better than ours. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, I don't even have to say it's better or worse. I just say it's irrelevant, other than when it gets in the way of an Aboriginal person leading uh, a self-determining life, right? Not collectively self-determined, but one where they have sufficient uh, ability to get on and make as good a life as they can. But you don't even hear that discussion anymore. It, it's just not, it's as if we're not allowed to talk about a person's abilities. Um, we're not allowed to talk about a person's common humanity. We're only allowed to talk about them in this one little piece in the middle, which is called identity, as if all of their life is determined by their identity. So, yeah, the gap uh, has closed except for the last 20%, and that gap can never close until we find ways of bringing those people in, whether that's literally, metaphorically, you know. it's There are many ways in which you can do it, but basically if you don't get those kids to stay in school for 10 or 12 years, they are dead. Yeah. It's as serious as that. And that 20% that you're speaking of, is that mainly in rural and remote communities? Uh, Mainly, Stephen. The figure comes from a a very nice study published about five years ago which said, uh, tragically, 20% of Aboriginal men have been to jail, uh, a lesser proportion of women, so they took the, the, the men. They took their figures out of the census. And then they found that all of those Aboriginal men who had not been in jail are doing about as others as well as other Australians, okay? That's where it comes from. So you then say, well, where do the 20% live? Uh, it, it, it's not a 
it's not a total overlap. I mean, you'll get blokes uh, in jail at Kempsey or out at Nowra, uh, Wollongong or whatever, but it tends to be the remotes. Mm. Uh, and because that's where those people have just been left out. They've just, in fact, pushed out. The, the left wing say of remotes, you go there and be a proud Aboriginal person, and the right wing says, you stay out of town. Right? So between the mm. two, they just stay out of town until they come in and play Merry Hell, as in Alice Springs or Sejuna or wherever. So the, the big failing in Aboriginal affairs in the last 50 years is that we, we forgot the purpose. The left took over and said the purpose is self-determination. And the right forgot to, to say, no, 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 the purpose is integration. You don't have to be the same as us. You can have your own beliefs and so on, but you must integrate to the extent that you learn how to survive in this society. It's not the society of 235 years ago. That's long gone. Yep. The society which now is very modern and every Aboriginal kid has one of these. Yep. They can see the world through this, but they don't know how it works. They don't know, they don't know how value is created. They don't know about the investment and the discipline that all of us have to undertake in order to survive. We just left that out. And I think that's cruel. I think I've been very cruel to that last 20%. And, and frankly, uh, getting that 20% out of uh, the hells in which they, which they uh, the hellish circumstances in which they live is going to be very difficult. But it'll be easier if we agree in the direction in which it must head, which is <clears throat> to integrate them. So by integrating them, like I've always thought about it, like why not incentivize people who are especially out in the rural areas? Um, why would instead of like there's so many different programs that the government fund for Aboriginal affairs? Okay, and, and it makes no real difference on this particular gap that we're talking about right now, the 20%. Isn't it better to focus that money on um, incentivising them and inspiring, I don't even care if they're Aboriginal or not, people out in rural areas to actually come closer to, the, to mainstream life and actually give them a leg up to, um, you know, better education and better jobs and better opportunity? Yeah, it's, Adam, I agree, it's, ha it's how you do it. Uh, when the whole discussion's going the other way. So yeah. basically Aboriginal leaders have an incentive to say it only works when Aborigines run organisations, so Aboriginal controlled health services, employment services, all the rest of it, because they get jobs out of that. Yeah. So we've been fooled by all that. They say, oh, we get better results than uh, when a non-Aboriginal person runs uh, you know, service provision. That's that's wrong. It's provably wrong, but no one will call it out. So um, it's how we go about, if you like, almost disarming this industry and how we get those kids to attend school. So right now in Alice Springs, there's, uh, what's the school? Urara is a school that has to cope with uh, kids from out of town but also in and around Alice Springs who are just playing up terribly. And that school 
Uh, Bess Price, by the way, is the deputy principal. Bess is the mother of Jacinta. Um, she's deputy principal. She's saying, for goodness sake, we need to build a facility here so the kids can live in because they need to be kept safe from their families, yeah. not from the white man, from yeah. their own families. So that's how, how uh, immediate the whole thing is. There's the great insight. There's a woman who came from, you know, the, almost the last group in around Uendamu, and in one generation went all the way through to university, got elected to parliament, became a minister and so on and so forth. So the ability is there. The transition can happen, but it takes extraordinary strength and it takes uh, a view on the part of policyholders, that is that, you know, all those smarties sitting in Canberra and all the, all the university types to say, this will work if we agree on the end point. Now, we're a long way from agreeing on that, you know. I mean, I haven't been invited to a, to a, to a decent conference in this field for 30 years because, you know, I'm the devil. But we're, we are right. And the proof is that 80% of average people have come in, are integrated, um, they have about the same problems as others do, you know, some family breakup, some uh, alcohol, drug dependence, uh, some unemployment, all the rest of it. But that's, you know, that, that's, that's a life that many non-Aboriginal people, unfortunately, live for a time and hopefully come out of it. But this sort of damning generation after generation being locked on uh, collective title playing out this role of being an Aboriginal person and living their culture, that's what's killing them and it's going to take very strong medicine to overcome it. Now I want to get into the nuts and bolts of The Voice with the referendum coming up later in the year. Now, Adam and I, we're in Sydney. Adam's in Campbelltown. I'm here on the northern beaches. Honestly, we don't have a lot of interaction with Aboriginal people. We don't know what's going on in rural communities. Like we work full time. It's, it's expensive to go out to Alice Springs or other areas to see what's actually happening out there. But through this podcast, we have reached out to uh, Kerry White, who we interviewed uh, at the beginning of the year. And we got a lot of knowledge from her uh, about what's uh, happening in these communities and also her, her views on the voice and just views generally. I'm just going to play a clip now. It's about a minute and a half, but I think it puts in into very good perspective uh, what uh, the, I guess the message that Kerry's trying to get across. I guess you've heard of the Uluru statement. Yes. Well, the, the Uluru mob, they do not agree with the Uluru statement. They never wanted it. They weren't consulted on it and they're not happy about it. And how that, that Uluru statement came about was uh, due to the Wilson family, which is actually from down south here, um, nothing to do with up there. They were from down south. Anyway, they moved up to Alice Springs and they're the ones that active, became activists and pushed for the Uluru thing. And they got the Uluru statement and had Uluru handed back to the Aboriginal people. Well, in effect, what that did, 
was it ruined the lives of the Uruguay people because they used to love taking people up onto the rock, talking to them about their culture. They had a nice little cottage industry going at the base of the rock, uh, you know, doing their artwork and, and all different stuff, making stuff. And all that went. They lost a lot. So um, they're, they're now um, picking up about it and they also say no to the voice. They do not want it. Okay, so the main the main point that Kerry was trying to get across in her interview with her is that there's a lot of tribes and, and she calls them mobs. So there's a lot of mobs all throughout the country and she basically said that these mobs is basically separated into two. You've got the rural and remote mobs and you have the cityite mobs is how she called it. Now, there's a big difference between the two and she said the city cityite mobs are more the activist type mobs. They're the ones that are pushing these things like the voice and they don't necessarily agree with these cityite mobs in her community. Now, we know that this voice is going to be 24 members, but they're selected. So there's a selected group of uh, Aboriginal people that are going to be speaking directly to the executive of government and representing on behalf of the Aboriginal people. Well, where does that place someone like Kerry and where does that place her community? Whereas now if she disagrees with something that government pushes, she has a vote and she can rally people around her to, to vote in a certain direction to try and get her views across. But once say hypothetically the voice referendum succeeds and this voice is implemented, now everyone out there is going to believe that the, the voice represents the true needs of the Aboriginal people and Kerry will be left there saying, hey, I disagree with what you're proposing and she will have no voice at all to, to, put, to put her views across. Stephen, this is excellent stuff. Um, we've spoken to a, a lot of native title holders and they do not like the voice because they've spent years building their own politics, their own voice, so they have their own relations with public servants, state members, federal members. And all of a sudden this mob's going to come in over the top, so they're going to be knocked down a peg. They do not like native titles by and large, native title holders, do not like this idea, but it's it's hard to hear from them because they are literally more remote. Uh, Kerry's wonderful, but she's sitting out of Port Pirie. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult for her to be heard. And she's dead right about the Uluru mob. Uh, mind you, um, they will be speaking out quite soon. Uh, they will be given a voice okay. and they will be speaking against the, the Uluru proposition, I can tell you. So bit by bit, um, hopefully we've got time to bring out these no voices. And, look, let's concentrate on the 24 national people, right? Um, the Kalma Langton model, which, uh, you know, Prime Minister Albanese says we should go and read, um, well, we've all read it now, and it says there are 35 regional voices. They shall select the 24. Now, the 35 regions are based on Aboriginal health regions. Now, there's a big clue in that. One of the biggest employers of Aboriginal people in Australia are Aboriginal-controlled health services. So guess who's going to be the delegate at each of the 35? It'll be the biggest CEO of the biggest Aboriginal-controlled health service, right? So they're all going to be professionals. They then select one of their own to become the 24 national delegates. When they get to Canberra, on whose behalf will they lobby? Their own behalf. 
so they'll be lobbying for more money for themselves. Now, that's corrupt. I'm not saying yeah. they are corrupt, but the system is corrupt because they get selected because they are a big money earner, say, in the town and employed people. So they go to Canberra and they'll be asking for more money for themselves so that can be selected next time. That's corrupt. Right, for those of us who uh, have been elected or have tried to get elected, we had to at least try to get 50% of the vote at an election. You had to you had to reach out more widely in order to maintain your seat. The the model that Kalma Langton has is is almost the opposite. You maintain your seat by concentrating on filling the pockets of your small group. And that's that's brutal politics. Uh, it will be corrupt. And if the Australian people understood that, they would smash this thing. But it's probably a bit too much detail for most people to take in. That's almost um, t- tyranny in politics, that kind of style. That's a very socialist way, you know. You line the pockets of the people who build you up. And then um, that's, you know, they've all done that. I'm, I'm getting a lot of this from... Um, a show that I watched on it called How to Become a Tyrant. And um, that's kind of like from the play, that's like the play. Did you? Did you? Sorry? <laughs> well, I learned that, you know, to become a tyrant, you have to grease your wheels. And, yeah. um, and, and as long as the money's flowing, you're pretty much safe and alive. Um, so, but when you talk about this, it's, it is very similar. That is, that is basically a, a, a tyrant's playbook, what you're talking about. You know, you focus it's on making awful, your money. It's an awful system, and yet there we have the Prime Minister of Australia lauding it. Uh, and they wrote in their little, their big report, Kalma Langton, that uh, these matters uh, were not justiciable. You remember they'd say that? There was no legal opinion on yep. that. They just said it, and then all of the dutiful little journalists would write that up. All of that is falling apart now, bit by bit. It's been torn apart. It is all justiciable. Um their consultation standards will end up in court. They will slow down um, Parliament and the federal uh, government, um, and there will be a price to pay. Uh, the voice will end up sitting around that Senate doing deals day in, day out, and the deals will say, basically, uh, we'll go quiet if you give us some money uh, in return for, you know, supporting a proposition to go through the Senate or or kicking up a fuss to not support a proposition to go through the Senate. They'll be like having three uh, extra independent senators. Uh, they won't have to literally vote or be in the House or in the Senate, but they'll be very powerful. And uh, as uh, one of the one of the advisors, uh, uh, Professor Davis, said of it, you won't be able to shut it up. You won't be able to shut them up because they'll be a political institution recognised and sitting in the Australian Constitution. That's a very, very powerful new institution which Australia has never done before. Now, you were a part of the Keating Ministry, so you were part of the executive. Now, this body, The Voice, will speak directly to the executive and I guess all the ministers. Mm. I don't think a lot of people really understand what the executive is and how significant it is that the, the voice will speak directly to the executive. Can you just let our li- listeners know, firstly, what yeah. is the executive and, and why is significant that the voice will be speaking to it? Okay. Well, uh, each of us uh, 
selects or votes for a member of parliament. Um, out of that come 151 members and 75 senators. Uh, and the majority party, uh, which would have the confidence of the House because they've got a majority, then elect a, a, an executive. It's a bit like any any association, you know, you elect your president and your secretary and your treasurer. Um, this is a slightly bigger team, uh, 18 or so, uh, and they are said to be the executive government, and they are the prime minister, the deputy prime minister, all of the ministers. So that's the team that runs the place. And um, you don't need a voice to talk to them. You can get to see ministers. I mean, it's a pretty busy life, but, you know, if you, if you wait and, 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 it's, and you've got a good case or something really worthy, then ministers are open in our system. So you don't need to write into the Constitution that you have a right to be heard by the executive. Every Australian citizen has that right, but it's a pretty crowded field. So that's the executive. Um, they'll also have rights to talk to uh, any member of parliament or any or any uh, public servant. Now, right now, Aboriginal people are probably the most organised lobby in the country. They are crawling all over Canberra all of the time. Uh, you couldn't shut them up if you tried right now they don't need this extra power i mean noel pearson has been you know top of the pops and marcia langton and tommy Carmer and all the rest and we they haven't shut up for 30 years how can they possibly say they don't have a voice it's just it's it's a joke uh this is a grab for power this is their last gasp it's a sort of uh, an ego thing that they want to stick it up the white man quote unquote because they think this is really good fun uh, and they don't. I, I would argue they don't care about their own. This is a big game to them, and if enough Australians wake up, uh, this thing will go down very, very heavily because it is a grab for power, and it would undermine our democratic system seriously and severely. Um, so you answered one of my questions, but um, if you can expand on it just a little bit, um, so what is the real motivation? For the voice to parliament, apart from sticking up the white guy, um, you know, what is there any other motivations that you can see that are behind it? Well, I think it's 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 uh, what's what's a nice term, self-reverential. You know, it's sort of like we are important. We need to be heard all the time on everything. Well, guess what? Every politician has an ego. You know, we all want to be heard. Here's me. You know. <laughs> Seven years of age and out of politics for years, we all want to be heard. But yeah. I don't get the right to be written into the Constitution. That's a no-no. No one is mentioned in the Australian Constitution. It's a rule book about institutions, not persons. But this mob wants a new institution which only they, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, however defined, can be members of, can select and then have all of these rights and a huge bureaucracy to go with it because they'll need to be briefed on all sorts of matters. Um, it's a hard one, Adam, to know what's in the minds of people, but I just put it down to ego. Um, these people have been, their egos have been puffed up most of their lives. You know, they've been given jobs in universities. Uh, you know, most of them are very bright. And then uh, they get to the opening of everything. And then we, we get to praise their culture and they think, oh, a culture, yeah, yeah, we got one of those. 
You see, and, and it just builds. Their ego is fed. And then the remarkable thing is why do CEOs of business buy into this nonsense? Why yeah. do why do the leaders of uh, major sporting codes buy into this nonsense? They are so naive. They are actually doing us in the eye. And, and, and if you told them that face-to-face, they'd be shocked. They'd go, oh, no, no, we're not. We're just doing good. You are not. You are doing bad work here. And uh, you, you think there'll be a benefit to yourselves, you know, hint, hint, this is, this is smart politics. You're actually doing yourself in the eye, pal, because everything you do will now have a second board, uh, people of Aboriginal descent sitting there and saying, oh, we don't like this. Not without much, uh, without, with any logic, they just won't like it um, if it's not to their advantage. I mean, it's just an appalling idea. The, this idea of the voice should never have escaped a university. You know, it mm. got out of the lab and it's now infecting things. <laughs> now we've got to put it back. Oh, it's a new yeah. pandemic. A new but, pandemic, yeah. 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 I mean... The beauty of the, our system of government now is that it's equal. Everyone gets one vote and that's it. Everyone's represented. Now, once this is, let's say, hypothetically, again, this voice referendum succeeds and this, this, this Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament is brought in, a lot of people out there are going to be saying, hey, well, what about us as well? So could this open up a can of worms where we one day see a women's voice to parliament and an immigrant's voice to parliament or maybe an LGBT voice to parliament as well. Why not? Why not? Um, it will divide us. There's no doubt about that. Um, the The Aboriginal industry likes to use the term uh, reconciliation. You know, we're on a journey to reconciliation, but they never tell us what the end point is. Like, are we there yet? Um, yeah. Reconciliation to me has, has something to do with getting over, getting over you know, a, a war or a significant conflict. Um, we got over that a long time ago, but we're not allowed to settle it. So they want to build an institution that will forever divide us. And you're right, there may be others who come along later and say, well, I don't think we're being heard. So can you give us a voice as well? And, and this will destroy the notion of equal citizenship, we're, we're equal as citizens. I mean, I, I talk to some old Labor colleagues who, you know, who might bump into me at the shop and they say, oh, Gary, well, you know, big business has a voice. And you say, yeah, but they're not written into the Constitution. No. Really. Like, grow up. It's not in the Constitution. That's a very serious matter. Yeah. They have a voice. Yes, they've got money and wealth. But I tell you what, big business is not doing so well. They're getting beaten over the head by the Greens all over this country. So um, having a big voice in the media and getting out into the streets and gluing yourself to the road and all that sort of stuff seems to give you quite a lot of power, much more than money. Um, in it, And it's because we are such an open society. That's a good thing, but I think it's gone a bit riotous the last 30 years where. Uh, Lots of crazy people are, are listened to way beyond their, their actual value. But that's, that's, a, that's an almost a cultural uh, debate about why we've gone uh, the way we have. But the idea that one group would have a right to be heard above all others is just horrible. Now, uh, 
you'll be um, you'll soon be speaking uh, at an event with uh, in, in, it'll be in South Australia, and a number of speakers will be there, uh, including the Honourable Sarah Game, which is One Nation's Upper House member in South Australia. Now she is a huge fan of your book, Burden of Culture. Uh, she, when we interviewed her recently, she talked about it extensively as well. So this is how we first knew about your book. And I actually reached out her, uh, to her through the week and asked her if she wanted to submit some questions to you. And she submitted um, three of them. To, Adam's got two of them, but I'm just going to ask you one here now. It's based on your book. What are your thoughts in consideration that a victim mindset could be partly responsible for the lack of improved outcomes? Uh, that sums it up pretty nicely, actually. Um, what's happened in since the 70s, say, is that uh, many Aboriginal people have learned to complain. So they say, ah, now every time I complain, the white man gives me something. So therefore I complain more and he gives me more. That's a victim mindset. That's really dangerous. You do not bring up your kids to do that, right? You know, they learn to scream early on. You try and mollify them, it can, it can get worse. Okay, we've all been through that. So we actually think that's a really smart idea. So um, let me give you two little uh, case studies. In 1952, Sydney University was advertising scholarships for quote-unquote Aboriginal boys, which is a bit, not a nice term really. But, you know, for young Aboriginal men could go to university in 1952. I'm not saying many did, but we opened the doors. Today, in Croker Island, I know this from a nurse up there, there's a beautifully appointed uh, nursery for kids, very few kids in it. And, and, and Aboriginal people are saying, we don't have to play your game. You're just going to give us stuff anyway. We don't mm. have to put in the effort. So that's the, we could sum it up, I guess, as a victim mentality. I, I call it an entitlement because we are Aboriginal. Yeah, that's killing them. That's what's killing them. And it's going to be very hard to unwind. Yeah. Um, well, Jacinta Price also, I, I went and saw her speak at the vote, uh, at, a rally, at a rally recently, and she was saying the same thing. Um, you know, if you, if, if you keep handing out, and don't make them accountable for, you know, progressing, then that's what happens. It's just a handout mentality. Um, another question that I had um, from um, the Honourable Sarah Game, um, what's needed to eliminate wastage of money spent on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with no outcome? Is it possible? Well, um, you must make service provision contestable. What I mean by that is, just because uh, a health service or an employment agency is run by an Aboriginal group, so what? They've got to be able to do a better job. Now, unfortunately, the, the sort of premier uh, economic advisory body in the country, uh, the Productivity Commission, uh, has been given the job of evaluating Aboriginal programs. But if you read through how they say they go about it, it's just a disgrace. They say, oh, well, we'll evaluate them. Uh, but we have to keep in mind the importance of Aboriginal culture, Aboriginal self-determination, blah, 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 blah. And you think, what is the point of that? You've already mm. predetermined the outcome. So it's a bit like saying um, if, I, if I were a treasurer for a day and I, and I went to the Productivity Commission, I said, look, 
uh, I want Australians to have the best car available as long as it's Australian built and you, and union run. <laughs> right? That's that's predetermining the outcome. You're not going to get yeah. very good cars. We we learned that. So yeah. the Productivity Commission at the moment has just hung itself with this stupid sort of preambular notion that it has to be Aboriginal run. They they've been Perhaps they've been told, I don't know, but they've been sold on the idea of collective self-determination. That's the killer. So uh, in answer to Sarah's question, um, if you don't undo that mindset, you will not get proper evaluations. It must be whoever is the best provider does the job. And I guess the big summary here is don't live your life through government programs. Get the mm. hell out of there. Just get away. I mean, yeah. go to school, I guess, a government program, but try to live your life not as a recipient of government programs. That is not the purpose of life. Uh, and we, we can do that. You, you can get get kids early, teach them about, well, teach them English. You want to you give a person a voice, teach them English. That's what you've got to do. You know? um, but in addition, we've got to teach them about the creation of value. How do you create value? And rather than just... We complain and you give. There's no value created there. The white uh, public servant's happy because that keeps them busy. And the Aboriginal recipient is sort of happy. They're killing each other, but, you know, they, they got whatever the next dollop is. Yep. That is not creating value in this society. So there's a, there's a missing link, literally, that uh, we used to teach people who needed to understand how our society worked, but... Um, it's now gone, and, and, and really it went with the missionaries. The missionaries had uh, intimate knowledge of Aboriginal society, but they provided a bridge into the open society. And when they were pushed out, we lost all of that insight, uh, the language, the empathy, the well, the disciplines, uh, and the discipline that's required, and then we're just left with this big gap so kids today, a lot of remotes, barely speak English, don't turn up to school, don't understand the need for investment, and their parents are, well, in, in a shocking state. And the grandparents, the few who are living and speak English, uh, are barely hanging on. It's, it's a disaster. Now, you're involved in this uh, this group, Recognise a Better Way, with Warren Mundine. There's also another group uh, that is Fair Australia that has Jacinta Price involved. Do you want to just speak on what you're hoping to achieve with these uh, with these different groups? Yeah, so uh, we established Recognise a Better Way to uh, engage in the bigger papers, the bigger debates. Uh, now, what does the treaty mean? What does the voice mean? What does uh, truth-telling mean? So, and we have a almost all Aboriginal board because we knew that it was important that Aboriginal people speak out and say no. Uh, old whiteys like me, yeah, 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 you, we can be ignored. Um, but when the Kerry Whites and uh, the Janisha Knapps, she's from Fremantle, uh, Ian Conway, Bob Little and others, when they speak out, uh, it's, it's more powerful. So we put it together, we've written the bigger papers, um, and we're travelling the country talking. Now, the uh, Fair Australia... Uh, has a much bigger machine behind it, which is Advanced Australia, and they're very big on 
recruiting volunteers. We, we have a you know quite a tribe of, uh, of volunteers, but they have a much bigger machine, which was already operating before this debate came along. They'll be very valuable. Come referendum day, we're going to need all the helpers we can get. Yep. And I say to anyone listening here, um, certainly come and have a look at our material for reading and you might be able to help out. But if you want to volunteer on the day, go to Fair Australia and sign up because that's going to be the big list. Who goes on what booth for how many, how many hours? That's what we need, right? We need that big workforce along with the Liberal Party, One Nation, Nationals, West Australia Party, Liberal Democrats, everyone who's on the no side is a friend. Yeah. Uh, and we should be handing out on the day, with great respect, not our party logos, but any material that comes from Fair Australia or Recognise a Better Way because we really want to and properly say to the electorate, forget about your party political uh, background, just concentrate on this referendum, yes or no. And, and we really need to do that as a group. Come together for a moment in time. Uh, the other distinction, Steve, is that Recognise a Better Way will continue after the referendum because uh, we're very serious about the debate. When this thing goes down, and I'm pretty confident it will go down, there'll be, you know, gnashing of teeth and blaming and all the rest of it. And we'll be saying, now's the moment for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We want to tell you how it really works and why the last 20% are not getting in. And we're going to be running a major conference in the middle of next year from people at the front line saying, this is the crisis and what doesn't work. And then we're going to talk to people who are running you know, boarding schools, uh, rehab centres, all sorts of things that are helping individuals day by day, one by one, to try to get them into the wider society. And that, that's happening all the time, but we don't, we don't hear enough about that practical, practical stuff towards integration, not practical in the liberal sense that says, oh, we're going to be practical. For what end? Towards integrating a person into the open society. Well, this, just with that, I'm sorry, I just want to really quickly jump in here because this is a question I was going to last ask, but I'm going to ask it now because you kind of brought it up. Now, we've talked about hypothetically if the voice succeeds, but hypothetically if the voice doesn't succeed and it gets voted down, what is the real answer for helping Aboriginal people? Let's take the voice out of it. Let's take away all them. Alan Jones talks about the 50-plus advocacy groups out there. Pauline Hanson just released some data about how corrupt they are and how money's getting funneled out somewhere. If we just take all that out of it, what's the real answer that, that the Aboriginal people need? Okay, well, uh, we have three propositions uh, in recognised better way. First, uh, there should be an historic form of recognition, i.e. they're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here at the coming of Europeans. You put it in a preamble. So we're still going to have that debate again, even though we had it 20 years ago. The second one is we want a conversation with native title holders. It is law. We are not going to overturn that law. But most native title holders are not doing well at all. There's no money in it unless they're pretty lucky. So we need to say to them, well, what are you going to do? Sit here forever? What are your children going to do? 
they're not the ones who won native title. They're now probably sitting in the city wondering what it's all about. So we need to refresh that conversation. And the third bit is we'll work with existing Aboriginal organisations because there are thousands of them. But the ideology, the ideology must change. It's not about identity or Aboriginal ownership. It's about giving you the keys to the door to the open society. Mm. Most of that will be very, very heavy cultural intervention, i.e. get those kids into boarding schools and on a path where they've got a chance. There'll be a lot of failure, but at the moment the failure rate's about 100%. If you don't get a kid away from those communities early, uh, they will they will have a shocking life. So it, it's a mindset, Stephen. It's a mindset. and We've got to win that mindset back and we'll, you know, the day after the, the referendum, even if it got up, we will plug on anyway because we know we're right. Uh, and we know this industry uh, is, is seriously uh, misplacing and, and abusing, uh, if not literally, uh, its its own subgroup, 20%, who just got no way into the society. So just um, just on that as well, it's great that um, you jumped in with that question, Stephen, because it kind of was leading into the question I was going to ask anyway. So regarding, like, um, getting children out of their family environments, um, the Aboriginal children and Torres Strait Islander kids, um, there would have to be like a bit of legis legis uh, legislation change as well, wouldn't there? Because from my understanding of it, just with conversations with other counterparts and colleagues, you know, that um, the legislation kind of landlocks us. You've got stolen generation. So if you're taking children out of communities and putting them into boarding schools, then that could be open up the door for accusations against stolen generations, sure. even though you're trying to do the right thing. And then also, you know, prison deaths as well. So if you're um, trying to punish the people who are causing the problem, or then by people I mean Aboriginal people who are causing the problems in their communities that you're trying to get the kids away from mm. and put into boarding schools, they're not going to prisons. They're not going to prisons anyway because you're not allowed to put them in prison. Yeah. Look, I don't think we need to change legislation. We need to apply legislation to people equally. So if a child is being abused or they're not attending school and a white child in a city situation would be treated in a particular way, we just want to apply the same rules. Now, anyone in a remote area, it becomes more difficult because of the physical access and so on. And we're not talking about taking children from their families. We're talking about working with those families to have that child uh, perhaps go to boarding school and there's a lot of examples of that, uh, but I suspect we need more boarding, boarding schools in the regions. It's no use taking a kid out of, uh, you know, Yoindamu and, and putting them in uh, Scots College in Melbourne or something. It's just, that's stupid stuff. Uh, and, and I might say to a lot of those programs with great respect to them, they cherry pick. They'll take a kid out of Darwin who would have graduated from Darwin High and gone on to have a reasonable life uh, and plonking in Scots College. And what happens is it's just cost you about three times the amount to get the same graduate, uh, but yeah. you can put a tick on Scots College, right? So, no, no, none of that sort of nonsense. We're talking about the, the serious failings that are occurring where children are going to have a shocking life. You need to have conversations with, uh, if you like, the entire community to say, uh, these kids are going to be in big trouble. And a lot of Aboriginal parents want their kids 
to have a better life. They just don't know how. But a lot of it, um, Adam, is it, it's a mindset. It's permission. So if if a young, you know, white, bright-eyed teacher goes out to wherever it is um, with an idea that this is a special culture and it's wonderful and all that, but misunderstands their role is to get that child to have a sufficient grasp of English and mathematics in order to survive in the wider world, then they will fail every time. Yeah. In six months there, they'll leave in tears. But if they know the purpose of this is to change that child's life in order to bring, I, I use the term bring them in. It's an old term I know. It's not, it doesn't literally have to be physically, but it's psychological. If, when, if that's not the purpose, everything else follows. Everything else fails. But I tell you what, that's, that's going to be a war and it's one I look forward to engaging in. Well, well we're right there with you, I guess. So you know what I mean? Like, uh, honestly, yeah. like it's, it's, you know, it's about making, it's, it's about, it is about making a go of it and letting everyone have a go of it. I mean, I, um, and, 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 and look, we, our language has to be careful. We are, I, we are setting out to save lives. We want to help Aboriginal people. The last twenty percent, we don't want to help the leaders who are helping themselves to taxpayers' money. Absolutely, yeah. Now, Bess Price actually wrote a forward to your book, Aboriginal Self Determination. Her daughter is Jacinta Price, who I feel is a real leader of this nation, and who knows where she can go in the future. Mm. Uh, we have Warren Mundine, who's against the Voice. Jacinta's against the voice. A number of Aboriginal people are against the voice, but they seem to be ignored. What is your opinion of Jacinta Price uh, as a future leader of this nation? Um, she's an excellent, uh, a wonderful woman uh, and becoming an excellent politician. Let's not push too hard. She, she's, with great respect, still a kid. And I've had her around here to coffee, right? And I know her parents really well. She's still a kid. It's a very tough game. My fear with Warren and Jacinta is that we're putting too much pressure on them. Mm. Just you know, Warren's an older bloke and he's been around, but look, this is this is tough. They cop a heck of a lot from their own mm. So I, it's all right for me to go around because you know I'm past it. And <laughs> it doesn't matter, um, but they cop a heck of a lot of personal abuse, you know, and and that's that's uh, that can that can bring you down. So I just say to Jacinda, and I have said to her, just, and I've said to her mum, I said, just look after yourself as well. This is this is a long game. Um, don't try and do everything. Um, you know, it could be a while before you're in government and don't take on the Indigenous Affairs portfolio. I mean, mm. I think it's an okay choice at the moment because it's a referendum. I think that was correct. But if I were her, I, I'd broad, I'd, I'd step back and go much broader because yeah. the answer is in understanding the whole society, not just your people. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think she knows that. But it's look, it's uh, politics a tough game, uh, a very complex one, and it, it takes quite a while to learn your craft. So I think you just give her a bit of time. That's what I'm. That's my plea. It's almost like an act of being typecast, isn't it? You don't. Yeah. You just can't put in that. Exactly, and, and you've got to watch that. She, she she doesn't want to be typecast. She has obligations in the territory and to her own people, but I think she has a bigger role to play. But it, it'll take some years to for her to uh, learn how to act at bigger role. 
Yeah, she, she and you're right because um, she's just developing um, in her own, as I can see. I've met her a couple of times and we've had just some really nice, pleasant conversation, not necessarily about politics. And, you know, she's just got a wonderful charisma about her. I, I would, I mean, I guess, and I guess that's what a lot of Australians are looking for. We've had conversations in the past with different guests about, you know, how important is it to have a bit of charisma? I mean, Bob Hawke had charisma in his own way. Uh, Paul Keating had charisma in his own way. Um, you know, even, you know, John Howard had his charisma in his own way. So um, from from speaking to her, I think she is like the great hope of the people because when you speak to her, she's just a really true blue, honest person. And um, speaking to her, it's fun. She's got a wicked smile. And, um, you know, like, you know, you can just kind of like, you know, you just feel comfortable around her. And I think you're right that if people like us who are like, you're going to be the next leader and this, that, the other, you know, it'll push her to burnout because I do believe that she could go a long way. But I'm glad that you did say what you said, Gary, because, um, you know, it is just running a campaign for six months is exhausting, let alone in a position of her like stature at the moment, which I could imagine it would be, you know, 10 times as worse. So, you know, fingers crossed, she's, you know, she, she comes good and, and everything goes well and we wish her nothing but the best as well. Yes. Yes. Now we're getting towards the end now. Thank you very much for your time, Gary. But I just have two more questions that I just quickly want to ask you. The first one is obviously you were part of the Labor Party. Now this is the Labor Party are pushing this. What has been the reaction to you since you've left government? Uh, and and at, this issue is not the only issue that you've uh, you'd be speaking on. You, you've come out against tobacco and charities and a few other issues as well. What's the reaction from the Labor Party towards you since you've left government? Oh, I think they'd be very disappointed in me, you know, that, that I'm not a nice fellow or, you know, a naughty boy or something. But all that's so long ago. I mean, I left the Labor Party in about the year 2000. Uh, or rather, I argue the Labor Party left me. I think it's a very left-wing outfit now. Yeah, and, well, Mark Latham says the same thing. Yeah, they're very left-wing. Um I was always uh, what we used to term an economic rationalist, um, basically still am, but here I am dealing mostly in uh, um, culture wars and I'm, and I'm comfortable in that. We leave the economics now to one side and it, it's the battle that will determine our future because it's the, one, it's the, it's the world in which most people live. It determines their, their, their broad view of the world um, and I'm afraid... They're probably, look, 25% of Labor voters will vote no at the, at the referendum, right? So that's, that's old Labor, that's me. Um, but you don't hear from them anymore. They're not represented. Uh, Labor is an outfit that uh, is filled with university graduates, and I was one of the, one of the first. I was an apparatchik. Um, but they're just so left-wing. It, it's, it's, mm. And Albanese is, is, is an old... Left winger. I first met him as a young organizer in the New South Wales uh, headquarters. Uh, you know, he's, he's a young left winger, and he, he now he's an old left winger. There's, there's no change there, but, but the party has been dragged left all over the country. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's not a good thing. So no, we don't uh, we don't uh, really talk anymore. Well, that's what people don't realize. The Labor Party is so factional, and there is. Uh left and right wing element to the Labor Party. It's a lot more left now, but back in your day, the the right was very dominant. Everyone, people in the know know about the Sussex Street machine. 
And uh, this leads me to my next question because you brought him up, Richo, Graham Richardson. Now I've read his book, um, uh, Whatever It Takes, and he detailed his alliance with the Greens. I think it was the 1990 election. You might correct me if I'm if I'm wrong there. But he he kind of established this uh, alliance with the Greens to get preferences from the Greens, and it was, he, he advocated it was, that it was a big success, even though he was such a strong part of the right. Do you think in retrospect that was a mistake? Well, yes and no. Look, uh, I could argue it got my seat for me. You know, I mean, I, I survived the 1990 election. Uh, but it was that Coronation Hill moment where, in fact, the day after the decision in Cabinet, I debated the Prime Minister, you know, just as a mere backbencher because I just hated the decision they'd made. I knew the falsity of it. Naturally, I lost. But... Um, it was a it was a, a movement. You grab your your chances in politics, and uh, Richo grabbed the chance, and we probably survived on on green second preferences. But um, you shouldn't do it a second time. You know? mm. We're now obliged to the Greens, or Labor's obliged to the Greens, and uh, they end up eating you. They just eat you. And uh, I wouldn't mind a, a little conspiracy between Labor and Liberal to to, to crush the Greens. I think. Once the Greens moved from being an environmentalist and preservation outfit into energy, it was the end. They are killing this country. They're yeah. seriously killing it. And uh, uh, Labor has to wake up to that. And you know, the Liberals understand it, but they don't quite know what to do. Yeah. All right, I've got one more question for you because we're at the hour mark. Um, why is it racist to define Aboriginal eth ethnicity? Uh, it's not. It's not. But it's unhelpful. And I say this because the object should be that government programs should be delivered on the basis of need. Even Marcia Langton now says that the first time in 40 years, which she said it recently. So rather than go down the track of saying, you know, what's your racial background, I'd rather not talk about it at all and say, I don't care. If you're poor, I will help you. If you're not, I will not help you. Uh, if you if you want to stand on a soapbox and praise your elders, well, good on you, pal. It's, it's not, none of my business. I don't I don't have to, I can cheer if I want. I don't have to cheer. Uh, but the best thing is to not end up in that debate because I think it turns people off. They get very afraid. It has uh, resonance of you know debates from the sixties back. We don't need it. We don't need that debate. Oh, well, thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, how can people follow you? We've brought up Recognise a Better Way and we'll put up the website for that. But is there any other ways people can follow you, maybe on social media or a website or something? Oh, I keep off social media. <laughs> you know, we all <laughs> might regret it. Uh, I think the best way is Recognise a Better Way. Keep a lookout for us because, as I said, we will continue after the referendum because we used to run a thing called the Benelong Society. This will be Benelong 2, where we'll be talking to people from the front line about what it's going to take to save lives. And uh, so look out for Recognise a Better Way. We will carry on. And uh, please, if, if, you're, if you're a reader, have a look at The Burden of Culture because it does explain the Aboriginal industry and how we got to where we are today. And you can go to Quadrant Books for that. And I'll definitely be uh, purchasing a copy. There's no audio book, is there? 
No, uh, no, there isn't. No, we, we, we're trying to get it uh, electronically uh, and but the audio thing is not, not available. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a bad reader, but I'll, I'll definitely get a copy of that one. No, I, I just, love it. A chapter a night, you know, 12 nights, you'll knock it off. I yeah, just love the head. I love the headphones, and I can listen and work. You know, I can I can listen to the reading, and I can work at the same time because you know I don't get. Uh, to- all right. Well, look, I, my daughter's an actress, so maybe I should get her to sort of read. It. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, do that. I, all my profits would go. <laughs> <laughs> no, more people will buy it. Buy the book then, if they can hear right, it in the audio. Right, I'll bring it. You convince me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Dr. Johns, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Adam, for uh, coming on tonight as well. And if anyone's uh, watched this, and I think we kind of got across some really powerful messages tonight. So please share, share, share. Get it out to everyone if you've watched this episode and enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for watching. Thank see you, Jens.